The word today is from the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and we'll be looking at verses 17 through 34. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you drink, excuse me, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself, then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. Let's hear the word of the Lord today. When my wife, Eliza, asked me, probably earlier this week, I think, I can't remember the exact day, how do you feel? I said, I feel fine for the most part, except I have a really stiff neck, and I have no idea why it's seized up on me. Um... There's got to be an explanation for this, but I have no idea how this happened. Translation is something I can control and prevent. And my wife, as she loves to do, smiled compassionately. That's important. Step one. And then she simply said, babe, you're just getting older. (laughs) I'm only 36. And she's been saying since I feel like we got married at 22. And when you get older, things start to change. How many of you would agree things start to change when you get old? Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Somebody said, I'm still young. You're going to be saying that when you're 80. I can just hear. And and of course, like you, my friend, I 
I vehemently denied it. I'm not getting older. But, but I do think we need to be honest. Um, things change as we get older. I don't need to convince you of that. And one of the things that's changed for me, and perhaps for you, is my experience at family meals. Family meals. So when I was growing up, my parents would often host these large holiday dinners for our extended family. And we would squeeze three or sometimes four generations around the dining room table. My mom remembers this. And we would eat great quantities of food. And because the dinner was buffet style, right? Again, the things you remember as a kid, you could take everything you wanted to eat, right? And avoid what? Everything you didn't want to eat that on other days your mom would just kind of make you eat. And the other great benefit was, unless you were being watched carefully, you could eat two or three desserts (laughs) without getting into trouble. (laughs) And of course, that's simply what I remember as a young boy. Family meals were all about the food. Well, 20 years later, we still have family meals. I'm grateful we do. But what they represent and what I look forward to experiencing in them has really changed. Okay? So the food is still good, but it's the relationships that I treasure. So it's the time to hear how my brother and his wife are doing, navigating the challenges of parenting. It's the time to listen as my oldest son learns how to participate in adult conversations. (laughs) That takes time. It's the time to watch as my mom faithfully does what she's done for over three decades and move tirelessly between the kitchen and the dining room and the kitchen and the dining room, practicing the gift of hospitality. Where it's the time to listen as, as my dad, as I've heard him do, as long as I can remember, praise a sincere prayer of thanksgiving to God on our behalf for all the ways the Lord's blessed us. And then minutes after that, immediately tells yet another story about his lack of technical savvy. (laughs) Love you, Christopher. Christopher's actually going to become a member of the church later, so careful. I hold the cards. (laughs) But what's my point, friends? It's same table, literally, my parents' house, same room, completely different experience. So family meals were great fun as a kid, but they are increasingly priceless as I get older. And I wonder Christian, if that's how you would describe your experience of our family meal as a church, the Lord's Supper. The longer you follow Jesus, has it become more delightful or more rote? More satisfying or more unthinking? Is it chew the bread, swallow the juice, and on to the next thing? my family meal experience as a child? Or or is it spiritually feed upon Christ and him crucified? Nourishing your joy in him and, and deepening our shared fellowship as the people of God. Our relationships, 
more, more like my family meal experience now? What, what would you say? Well, this is the second to last sermon in our Sunday Matters series. And we've been focusing on the what? The things that Jesus tells us to do when we gather as a church to worship. And our focus this morning is on the Lord's Supper, which is one of two sacraments or means of grace that the Lord has given us as his people. And I think it's worth noting at the outset of this message that throughout church history, the Lord's Supper has been among the most celebrated and debated elements of Christian worship. And yet, please hear this, even when it was a source of strong disagreement, everybody agreed on what? It's a matter of great importance. I would argue such is not the case today. At least in the Protestant circles that I'm familiar with, our working assumption tends to be if it's controversial, it can't be essential. Right? If people disagree on it, many think it can't be important. It's a personal relationship with Jesus that counts. Everything else is peripheral. Friends, that attitude is more American than biblical, okay? And there is a certain irony in the popularity of of prayers for unity in the church. Media even loves to cover such things even as we minimize and take for granted the family meal that Jesus himself hosts to strengthen and affirm our unity in him. That's ironic. And friends, that should not be. It shouldn't be because the the Lord's Supper is a precious means of grace to the people of God, both corporately and individually. And I'll confess at the outset, it is just impossible for me to cover all the Bible teaches on this topic in a single sermon. Uh, That would be crazy. And I resisted the temptation to make this yet another multi-part foray. (laughs) So here's here's what we're going to do, okay? There's no way I can say everything the Bible says on this. There's no way I can cover all the various perspectives that Christians have held past and present on this issue. So I'm going to content myself with this, okay? I'm going to give you a simple definition of the Lord's Supper, and I'm going to explain a few of those key elements from Paul's letter to the church in Corinth. That's going to be our approach. So, first, the definition. Listen carefully. The Lord's Supper is a family meal by which we remember the price Jesus paid to make us one. Affirming and receiving anew all the privileges of covenant relationship with God and one another. Yes, that's a mouthful, but that's because there's a lot going on here. The Lord's Supper is a family meal by which we remember the price Jesus paid to make us one. Affirming and receiving anew all the privileges of covenant relationship with God and one another. Now, where is that coming out of the Bible? That's what you should be thinking, okay? So let me, let me expound this text and 
point out how that definition emerges from this text under three headings, okay? First, the Corinthian problem. How should we not celebrate the supper? Second, the gospel truth. What does Jesus teach us about the supper? And third, our present practice. How should we celebrate the supper? Okay, that's how we're going to work through this. So first, the Corinthian problem. How should we not celebrate the supper? Well, suffice it to say, if you look at verse 17, when it comes to this issue, the the Corinthians were in a heap of trouble. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you. Why not? What's, What's gone wrong, Paul? Well, they were eating and drinking the elements of the Lord's Supper. They were eating bread, they were drinking wine, but they weren't actually celebrating the supper because their attitudes and actions toward one another were undoing the very thing the supper is intended to accomplish. What it's all about, look at verse 21. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. You might not know this, but but when the early church gathered, and this seems to include the church in Corinth, uh, they, they usually had a big communal meal. You know, sometimes we'll have potlucks after church. Well, it's kind of like that, maybe. We don't know all the details. And they seem to celebrate the supper as part of that community meal. And so the problem, it appears, is that rich members of the church in Corinth were doing what? They were bringing great piles of food and assorted wines and having a party to the glory of God. Not While poor members of the church who had next to nothing were probably eating nothing more than the bread and a sip of wine in the supper. And so the net result of that, no surprise, was that they were creating divisions in the church. Look at verse 22. Paul gets practically apoplectic here. What? (laughs) Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. That's not like a quiet moment in the Bible. That's that's stern stuff. That's forceful and rightly so. Why? Because their practice of the Lord's Supper, what did I say earlier, was undoing the very spiritual reality the meal was designed to reflect and strengthen. What's that? Their unity in Christ as fellow members of his body. 1 Corinthians 10, 16. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are what? Say it. One body. Correct. For we all partake of the one bread. What's Paul saying? He's saying that the way we share the Lord's Supper matters big time because the elements of the meal represent something that's really, really important. Namely, the body and blood of Jesus Christ. So what what does he say? When we drink the cup, we are participating in the blood of Christ. 
when we eat the bread, we are participating in the body of Christ. You, you might not know this, but, but that word we translate participate in both cases is the same word we translate elsewhere in Corinthians and then in Acts 2 as fellowship, which means what? Close association, communion, intimate relationship between two parties. So think about it. When you become a Christian, when you turn away from sin and turn toward following and trusting and obeying Jesus, what happens? Well, the Spirit of God unites you to the Son of God such that you are now what? In Christ. You're in Christ. And that means the spiritual privileges and blessings he won through his sacrificial life and death become whose? Your spiritual privileges and blessings. And so so his standing before the Father becomes your standing before the Father. That's crazy. (laughs) His victory over sin becomes your victory over sin. And and our faith union with Jesus is so close, so real, that, that we become, as it were, in a spiritual sense, part of his body, along with everyone else who has been united to him. So, so what does Paul say in 1 Corinthians 12, 13? For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Jews are Greeks, slaves are free. And, and that spiritual body to which every genuine believer has been joined by the spirit is called what? The church. Ephesians 5, 23. Christ is the head of the body slash his church and is himself its savior. So, so who are we as a congregation then, friends? Well, first and foremost, we are a local expression of the body of Christ. That's our identity. Christ is our head and we're his body. Okay, now, now here's the critical connection, okay? Between 1 Corinthians 10, 16 and 17. If we put that scripture up again, I want you to look at this. When we all eat from a common loaf, the bread and the Lord's Supper, we are enacting and affirming in a very physical sense, not only our spiritual union with Christ, but also what? Our spiritual union with one another this way, not just this way, as fellow members of his body. We're affirming something in two directions. Gordon's fee, Gordon Fee's perspective on this, I think, is really helpful. He writes, Paul is not thereby suggesting that they, we, become that body through this meal. I agree. Rather, by this meal, they affirm, we affirm, what the Spirit has already brought about through the death and resurrection of Christ. That's the whole point of 1 Corinthians 12, 13. In one spirit, you were baptized into one body. It's the spirit that does that. Bottom line, what Paul teaches in these verses flies directly in the face of how many Christians understand the Lord's Supper. Why do I say that? Because we tend to think it's all about me and Jesus. It's all about me and Jesus. And enjoying, as I close my eyes and the band seamlessly plays music that just keeps me from getting distracted. Okay, here we go, here we go. I'm having an amazing private personal experience with God right now. 
Oh, the cell phone went off. It just, you're getting me out of my zone. No, friend, okay? The Lord's Supper is about our common union in him. And as a result of that, what? Our common union with one another. So when you're eating together of one body, what, what are we doing? We're publicly affirming that we are, as Rich prayed earlier, part of one body. We're affirming that. It's about our collective union with Christ, which means the supper isn't an individual, Jesus and me, I just love dates with him moment. It's a corporate meal. It's a family meal. It's something we do together. Notice, look at verse 17, verse 18, verse 20. Three times in the first four verses, that should tell you it's a big deal. Paul uses the phrase, when you come together, or when you come together as a church. That's not incidental. That's critical. Listen, the Lord's Supper is not a meal for individual Christians. Or for small groups of Christians. Or for the bride and groom to share at a wedding while other Christians look on. Now I'm stepping on toes. It's what? A meal for the whole gathered assembly of the church. It's a meal Christ has given to his spiritual family to be enjoyed by the whole family because the meal by its very nature affirms what? Our unity as a family. Family, family, family. <laughs> and that's why the Corinthians' attitude and approach was such a really big deal, right? So they were taking a meal designed by God to affirm our unity as a church, and they were using it to do what? Deepen divisions in the church. Exact opposite. They were, they were eating a meal that declares we are one when their actions said what? The exact opposite. And so Paul bluntly says, basically, guys, you are lying to God and one another through your practice of the supper. Stop it. And yet if you look at verse 19, this is just like the Lord. God was using even their sin to accomplish his purposes. For there must be factions and divisions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. What's that tell us? That, that the Lord's Supper rightly practiced does throughout the Christian life the same thing that baptism does at the beginning of the Christian life. What's that? It marks off the church from the world by celebrating our unity and our distinct identity as the people of God. And so the problem in Corinth, if you want to illustration of this is that they were treating the Lord's Supper like a fast food run. It's all about me and Jesus. I, I'd like a shake and a large fry and extra bacon. It's all about me and Jesus. When it's not, it's a family meal designed to affirm our unity as a family and listen, reserved for those who demonstrate through their love to God's people that they're actually part of the family. So that's the Corinthian problem. That's how to not celebrate the Lord's Supper. And, and Paul wonderfully lingers in his critique because in so doing, he reminds us what it's actually about. 
But then he transitions in verse 23 to the gospel truth and directs their attention to what Jesus himself said and taught. So look at verse 23. If if 17 to 22 remind us this is a family meal, family meal, family meal, 23 through 26 teach us what the family meal is actually all about. The Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way also he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. If you've been in church for years, I don't know how many times you've heard those words, right? In one ear, out the other ear. It's easy. But that's not good. So so think about that. What was the occasion on which Jesus said that stuff. Well, it was what? The night when he was betrayed. And Judas's actions on that front point us to a deeper reality. What is that, friend? That we are all sinners. That we're all sinners. We, we all stand guilty before God on account of our disobedience. We all need God to act in a mighty way so we can be forgiven of our sin that separates us from him and otherwise merits his judgment. And it's also the occasion, the night, same night, on which Jesus celebrated the Passover with his disciples. And what's that? And it's the annual Jewish festival that, that looks back on the night that the Lord delivered his people Israel out of slavery in Egypt. How did he do that? Well, he did that by passing over, hence called Passover, passing over all the houses of the children of Israel because there was blood painted on their doorways. And he killed the firstborns of all the houses of the Egyptians. Did he pass over the house of Israel because God liked them more than Egypt? Or they bore God's image more than Egypt? No. Why did he pass over? Because there was what? Blood on the door. Why? What does Hebrews teach us? For without the shedding of blood, there is what? No forgiveness of sins. Exactly. And so both the Passover and the supper Jesus instituted that night point forward to all he would soon accomplish on the cross. Because there, my fellow sinner, Jesus' body was broken for you. And his blood was shed for you. He died so you wouldn't have to die. Jesus was condemned so you could be justified. Jesus was stricken so you could be healed. Jesus was punished so you could receive mercy. In the fullest sense of the word, he's what? Our substitute. And he didn't die against his will. Notice that. He died because he submitted his will to the Father. What does verse 24 say? He gave thanks. Think about that. Because it had been the Father's plan from the very beginning of the story. He didn't give thanks because it was easy. 
He gave thanks because he gave glory to God. But what happened at the beginning of the story? If you're familiar with it, what did Adam and Eve do in the garden? They took and ate of the forbidden fruit, destroying their relationship with God and everyone who would descend from them. So what did Jesus, the eternal Son of God, do? He told them to take and eat. He took the very act that brought sin into God's perfect world and made it and redeemed it and transformed it into a memorial of his redemptive power to save. Go figure! What kind of God does that, friends? What kind of God does that? A God who delights to take what is most broken and most wicked and most abhorrent and use that for what? Our good, his glory. Amen. It's just how he rolls. And so what did Jesus' death accomplish, bottom line? Well, it opened a new way, new covenant, new way for our relationship with God to be restored. New covenant. Listen to Hebrews 10 verse 11. Here's the contrast between the old way of relating to God and the new way after Jesus. And every priest stands daily at his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us for after saying, this is the covenant I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I'll put my law in their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and lawless deeds no more. And where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. None. And I say that, brothers and sisters, I linger there because we need to know that when we eat the bread and drink the cup, we do not engage in an empty ritual, commemorating something that happened in the past that is, let's be honest, largely irrelevant in the present. Like Abraham Lincoln's birthday on the U.S. holiday calendar coming up soon. No disrespect to him, but it doesn't feel particularly relevant today. Not so with the Lord's Supper, right? Look at verse 22. When we share the supper, we're proclaiming once again. What are we proclaiming? To ourselves and one another and to the world, the present sufficiency and abiding power of God to save. That's what we're proclaiming. We're proclaiming his death until he comes, verse 26. And Paul's word there in verse 26, think of that. It means that the gospel, 
the preaching of the word declares through our ears is what? The same gospel that the Lord's Supper reveals to our eyes. In the same way the word proclaims, in a similar way, the supper proclaims. We're we're confronted, as the psalmist says in in a tangible way, taste and see that the Lord is God. We're reminded of of his exceeding goodness to us in dealing with the sin that separated us from God. The supper reminds you, Christian, of the forgiveness of all your sins and in so doing of the present and eternal joy you have of life with God. And Paul's words here, they guard us from thinking. When he speaks of the, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That's what we're doing in the supper. You're proclaiming something. That guards us from thinking that when Jesus talks about remembrance in verses 24 and again in verse 25, that that's somehow passive. Like, you know, you iPhone users, photos will just randomly pick an old memory and sort of wake you up with it sometimes. And, oh, look at that. What a memory. Passive. No. The Lord's Supper is tremendously active because in our remembrance, we are what? Think back to 1 Corinthians 10, 16. We're participating, right? We're sharing. We're receiving anew, as it were, the body and blood of Christ given for us. Now, listen, we don't receive it in a literal sense, Okay? Jesus said, this is my body, but he also said what? I am the door. I am the vine. It's symbolic. And on the night he uttered those words, his physical body remained in front of them. And it is still ascended in heaven right now. But hear this, friends. When we share the Lord's Supper, this is very important, Christ is present and we receive him anew in a spiritual sense. Spiritual sense. Feeding by faith, as it were, on his all-satisfying provision for us and enjoying sweet communion with him. That's what it means to participate in the body or participate in the blood. Because it's in, in the same way that bread and wine nourish our bodies in a physical sense, The supper nourishes our faith in a spiritual sense because it's what? Through faith, through wholeheartedly relying on God in every area of life that we obey Jesus' words to us in John 6, 54. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day for my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. What's Jesus calling us to a communion of reliance, a communion of trust and intimacy through faith that is leaning on Jesus and trusting Jesus and abiding in Jesus in every area of life. And we are demonstrating that, we're affirming that, and we're receiving all the benefits of that salvation by faith anew when we share the Lord's Supper. That's not just a passive memorial. Which is why Bobby Jameson writes, speaking to Christians, Christ is already yours by faith. Amen. But when you receive the bread and wine, you receive him all over again. The physical signs of bread and wine support and strengthen your faith. In the supper, a believer receives Christ's benefits anew. 
That's the gift. And I love how, how J.I. Packer, in his eminent way, <laughs> describes how the Lord helps us to do that. How does the Lord's Supper help us to receive Christ's benefits anew? How is our faith nourished through the Supper? That sounds sort of wacko and spiritual. What in the world does that look like? Well, listen to Packer. As surely as I see and touch and taste this bread and this wine, so sure is it that Jesus Christ is not a fancy but a fact, this is my favorite line in the whole thing, that he is what? For real. He's for real. I look at that and say, all my senses confirm for real. I look at this and I say, all my senses confirm for real. You know what the supper does? As we eat the bread and we drink of the cup, it assures our forgetful hearts once again that Jesus is for real. And all the saving benefits of his work for you, Christian, are for real. They're not make-believe. And when we share the supper, that means we're not only remembering the price Jesus paid to make us one, we're also what? We're affirming and receiving anew all the privileges of covenant relationship with God and one another, including Jesus' promise that he's going to get you home. What does Jesus say in Matthew 26, 29? I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. When do you think that's going to happen? When Jesus comes back, right? When he returns for his bride, his body, the church, and, and the wedding supper of the lamb begins. So the bread and the cup, they, they direct our gaze, as it were, not just back, but to the future too. Because it's more like an appetizer, friends. It's designed, the supper's designed to stir up and awaken our anticipation for the banquet, the feast that is yet to come. Because all who eat in a worthy manner at the table that Jesus has spread before us on earth are guaranteed what? A seat at the table that Jesus is preparing for us right now in glory. And so you know what the supper reminds us of? It reminds us that when we come to the table and we feel weary and disillusioned, and you are maybe in ways nobody else around you fully knows or understands, lamenting the sorrows of this life. The supper says to you, take heart, fearful saint. Take heart. The real feast is yet to come. It's yet to come. And so the supper rightly received be becomes a, an act of grateful longing and tearful anticipation and as, and as we follow Jesus on the road of suffering, the supper compels us to give thanks to God that like Jesus, our road will also end in glory. That's the gospel truth. So how, how does all this affect our present practice? How do we think through our present practice? How should we celebrate the supper? Well, Paul transitions again in the passage, beginning in verse 27, 
to do exactly that. How should we practice the sacrament? And he begins with a warning that has been both terribly ignored and seriously misunderstood. And that means we can't charge quickly through it. So we're going to think about this, okay? So look very carefully at verse 27. The most familiar words are often the most difficult sermons to preach because we think we know what they're up to. Whoever therefore eats of the bread or drinks of the cup in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Obvious question. What in the world does it mean to eat and drink in an unworthy manner? What's that about? Well, in context, it's not a fill in the blank. Context matters, right? It means to do what the Corinthians were doing. What were the Corinthians doing? To eat and drink when the conduct of your life reflects the utter absence of the spiritual realities to which the supper points. That's what they were doing. So if you haven't Turn from sin to follow Jesus. If you haven't stopped trusting in your power to save yourself through your good works and started trusting wholly in Jesus to save you, then the cross of Jesus Christ and, and his body and his blood, they don't speak a word of salvation over you. You know what they speak? They speak a word of judgment, friend. They speak a word of condemnation. You're still guilty of the very sin that nailed him to that tree. And you must not eat a meal that affirms fellowship with God when in reality you have nothing of the sort. Don't do that. Which is why we all need to examine ourselves. Look at verse 29. Before we eat, for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. There's another phrase we have to think about. To discern the body is to consider the connection between our relationship with Christ and our relationship to his body. What do I mean by that? Anyone can say they are good with God. Right? I've talked to all kinds of different non-Christians, friends, strangers. Anybody can say they're good with God. But the question is, has Jesus' authoritative representative on earth, the church, affirmed as much in your life through baptism and membership? Because your own assessment of where you're at with God is important, friend. It is important, but it's not sufficient in and of itself. The the family of God, think of it this way. The family of God must recognize you as a member of the family before you just plop yourself down at the family table. It's the same way in our own families. And so you, you say you've been united to Christ, but are you acting like Christ in the way you love and relate to his people? Or are your attitudes and actions toward your fellow believers, strengthening the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace? Or are you nursing resentment and bitterness in your heart toward fellow Christians for the way they have offended you? The goal of examining ourselves before we share the supper isn't to try to swim through some sort of 
morbid sea of introspection. (laughs) That's not the goal. The goal is practicing spiritual integrity that honors the Savior who invites us to his table. That's the goal. So to publicly affirm union with Christ and his body by sharing the supper when your life suggests otherwise is to what? To lie to God and his people. You're eating the supper, acting like one thing is spiritually true. When your conduct suggests or indicates it's not true at all. It's a family meal. And if you've never become part of the family or you're not living like a member of the family, then you can't just pull up a chair and plop down at the family meal, can you? You have serious business to do first. With who? God and his people. And that's why in 1 Corinthians 5, I won't go back there, that's a whole other sermon, but if you read that chapter, Paul sternly warns the church to not share the family meal with a professing believer. Yeah, I'm with Jesus, but they're not living as a member of the family. Why not? Because there's unrepentant sin in their life. Denying the very thing the supper affirms. Union with Christ, union with his body. That's a warning. But does that mean, friend, this is really important, okay? That if you are still struggling with sin, or you are in the middle of navigating a conflict with another Christian who might sleep next to you at night, (laughs) that you shouldn't share in the supper. Absolutely not. So listen very carefully to me. The question you have to ask is this. Is there any sin in my life any area of known disobedience to the word of God where I am refusing to fight for godliness? Where I am insisting, perhaps even through your passivity, on going my way, and I know it, instead of God's way? What's that called? Unrepentant sin. And I give you those questions not to send you out on a discovery of sin so you can confess all of them in a hurried attempt at self-atonement minutes before we eat and drink. I give you those questions because we need to evaluate the spiritual direction of our life, especially as it relates to how we're relating to fellow Christians. Are we handling those relationships? Are are we working for the unity and oneness that the supper proclaims? Or are we saying, I'm not interested in that through actively or passively bringing division into the body? That's what we have to ask. Because a lack of spiritual integrity when you come to the Lord's table is a really serious matter. Look at verse 30. Paul says, that is why many of you are weak and ill and some of you have have died. Translation, you can fool the pastor. You can fool your parents. You can fool all of your friends. You can't fool the host of the table. You can't fool Jesus. 
And the Lord's goal in, in warning us against unworthy participation is to what? What's his goal? To not send us groveling into the dirt, but to help us accurately assess the spiritual condition of our heart so that we might not be condemned on the final day of judgment. The goal of that examination isn't introspective condemnation, it's extrospective repentance that looks to Jesus and turns from sin to him for your good and God's glory. So let me conclude because we have to conclude by addressing those of you who tend toward the exact opposite end of that spiritual spectrum. Okay? Your struggle is the opposite of the Corinthians. And you might not know this, but, but you hear Paul th- speaking of examining yourselves, discerning the body, take, taking care to honor Christ by eating, drinking in a worthy manner, and immediately you just feel like, like you're standing in a well and waves of condemnation are just rising up in your heart. And it's not the gracious conviction of unrepentant sin. It's a creeping sense of unworthiness at remaining sin. Those are different. And if that's you, friend, I want you to hear the words of the good Martin Luther's close friend, Philip Melanchthon. Some will not venture to profess Christ until they can profess themselves. They wait for worthiness to come to the Lord's table. Not considering that it is unworthiness which they are to profess. Along with Christ's worthiness. Their sins, along with his name for the remission of sins. Think about that. When we come to the table, what are we remembering and celebrating? It's not the tidiness and worthiness of our performance this past week. What are we doing? We're celebrating Jesus, right? Not our unworthiness, but his worthiness despite our unworthiness. The whole point of the meal, everything that points to everything that screams is we are unworthy, but Jesus is worthy and all who are found in him and united to him become worthy in him. It's the beauty of the gospel. It's that Jesus doesn't just say here, I dare you to enter in and sit down at my table. Good luck. Because every seat has a trapdoor beneath it. And at any moment, boop. No. Jesus invites us to his table. Then what does he give you? If you're willing to receive it through repentance and faith, he gives you the garments you need to wear when you come in. Garments of what? Righteousness. Spotless righteousness to all who despair of saving themselves and run to Jesus for mercy. I love how one pastor said, whenever we take and eat, we need to look in three directions. Think about this. Three directions. We need to look at Jesus. Why? 
Because the Lord's Supper is a family meal by which we remember the price Jesus paid to make us one. And then we need to look at one another. Why? Because it's the price he paid to make us one. And then we need to look at ourselves, right? Can we affirm and with integrity receive anew all the privileges of covenant relationship with God and his people? And then having looked at ourselves, where do we need to look at the end? Back to Jesus and to his worthiness in the face of our unworthiness. That is what the Lord's Supper is all about, friends. It's a family meal by which we remember the price Jesus paid to make us one, affirming and receiving anew all the privileges of covenant relationship with God and one another. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the means of grace that is this meal. And Lord, I also thank you for the way this meal is a picture of our unity in Christ. It puts that before our eyes. So Lord, on this Sunday, I am so excited, Father, So excited that we get to welcome into church membership 13 adults today into our family. And Lord, I ask as we in just a few minutes join with them and in reciting our church covenant once again, renewing our commitment to live out and walk out and act out and speak out the fellowship and oneness the supper reminds us of, confronts us with and affirms. I pray as we do that, Lord, that you would work a deep and abiding unity in this family. And that whenever we share this supper, particularly today, as we welcome these new members, that we would be reminded that you in your body and your blood are the one who gives us and in whom we receive and affirm over and over and over again. Fellowship with the Father. Fellowship with one another. Thank you for a meal that puts that in front of our eyes yet again. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.